The sermon text for today is from the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Listen as I read God's word. Jesus heals a man with leprosy. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And if you uh, came in this morning and noticed something uh, new and fresh and different in the entryway, uh, that means it's, that it wasn't your first time here because there's new carpet that's on uh, this whole side, and uh, it's beautiful. And I just I, I found myself as we watched that video about the uh, persecuted church around the world thinking, uh, what a different world we live in than they do, and what a what a marvelous gift it is for us to be able to. Uh, come and celebrate something like we have new carpet, we have a better facility. When many of our brothers and sisters around the world experience uh, persecution and the threat of death on a regular basis. So, as we come to this passage this morning, I invite you to join me for a word of prayer. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lion may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Father, this morning we come before you and we give you thanks. We give you thanks that those who seek you lack no good thing. Thank you, Lord, for the ways that you provide in abundance, in excess for our needs. Thank you for the ways that you provide for us, even things that we want that we don't need.
Lord, we ask that as we look at this passage today that you would help Jesus to be clear to us. Would you remind us in a powerful way of who he is and what he has done? And would you lead that to transform us and change us in the power of your spirit? Lord, we desire to sit under the good and wise authority of your word. We desire to be changed and transformed by the power of your spirit. And so we ask that you would come now in a unique way during this time and you would do just that. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are in the last couple weeks here of a series that we have been in called Gospel Foundations. And if you've been here since the beginning of this, you know that we have been asking ourselves the question, what is the gospel? And we've been sort of putting flesh on that question. And what we've been saying is that the gospel is, it's in essence, it's an announcement. It's an announcement about something that has taken place in time, in space, in history, and the result of that historical event is that everything is different, that there are worlds of possibility that are now opened up because of what has taken place. And we've been saying that Jesus is the climax of this gospel story. Everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Bible leads us to see who this man Jesus is and what he's done, and everything that's in the Bible contributes something to us, telling us about who Jesus is and what he's done. And so everything in the Bible points us to Jesus and the announcement of his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension on our behalf. And so we've been looking at the story of the gospel as it's laid out in scripture, and we've been looking at sort of the major movements of that story. Uh, So it begins with God, then we saw humanity, rebellion, promise, rescue, and here today we enter the last sort of movement of this gospel story where we are looking at restoration. God's promise that he's going to make all things new. And so you could sort of summarize this movement of restoration like this. Uh, God has promised that he's going to make all things new. That he's going to eradicate the corruption and the brokenness that sin and idolatry have brought into our world. He's going to eradicate it. His creation is going to be made new. But then secondly, God's promise to make all things new starts now. We don't have to sit around and wait until Jesus returns and new heaven and new earth. We don't just wait for that, although we do. We get to experience little tastes, little foreshadowings of that kingdom of God coming here and now. And so this leaves us with some amount of tension, doesn't it? God promises that he's going to make all things new, and we're going to experience that one day, and we kind of get to experience it in part now, but we live in this thing called the already not yet. We live in the already not yet reality of God's kingdom. And that is that God is his sovereign rule. His good, wise, just sovereign rule is over all things. It extends to every nook and cranny, every square inch of the created universe is underneath God's good and wise and sovereign rule. And yet, we don't always see or experience the fullness of his goodness and his rule in the way that we would want to. And so we live in this already not yet tension. And so this morning as we look at this passage that you heard read just a moment ago about Jesus healing this man with leprosy, we're going to be thinking together about the already not yet nature of God's kingdom. 
And so as we look at this text, I just want to make a couple observations with you. Uh, The first sort of aspect or part of this text that we see here is this. We see the desperate condition of the leper. In verse 12, the text says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, this account of Jesus healing this man with leprosy, this is one of the very first things that Luke tells us in this book about who Jesus is. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think it's important that we recognize this is one of the very first things that we see of Jesus in this account of Jesus' life and ministry written by the man named Luke. So Jesus has already gone out and he's announced that he is God's coming deliverer. We see that he's uh, already began to heal people and perform miracles. We see that he's already gathered a group of disciples, a group of followers to him. And then this is one of the first things we see is Jesus healing this man with leprosy. And I think the reason Luke puts this here is because he intends us to read everything else that comes after this in the book of Luke with this in mind about who Jesus is. This passage tells us something about who Jesus is that Luke wants us to have in our minds as we read everything else that he writes about Jesus in this book. And what we see in this passage is something of the heart of Jesus. We see something about Jesus' heart. So the situation is this. Jesus is in one of these towns and a man came along who was covered with leprosy and falls down before him and begs him to be healed. Now, your Bible may have a footnote uh, on the word leprosy, and it may give some sort of explanation of that word. The word leprosy uh, was used in the ancient world and was used in the Old Testament to refer to any number of different contagious skin conditions. So we tend to think of leprosy uh, in terms of uh, Hansen's disease, which is the worst of the worst. That's the sort of medical term that we call it today is Hansen's disease. Uh, But this term leprosy was used to describe any number of different skin conditions that were contagious. So it could have been ringworm, could have been psoriasis, it could have been any number of different sort of abnormal or contagious skin conditions. And of course, some of these conditions were temporary, they sort of cleared themselves up, some of them were long-lasting. And so uh, what this man has, we don't know exactly what it was, that's the point. We don't know exactly what it was, but you can get a sense of the desperation that this man feels in the way he came to Jesus. So we know, we don't know exactly what it was he had, but we know that it was, it was really bad. So he comes to Jesus, he bows down before him, and he's a leper. He's got this contagious skin condition. And of course, according to the Old Testament teaching, a person who had leprosy was someone who was ceremonially unclean. Now we should be careful that we distinguish between something that is ceremonially unclean and something that is morally unclean. The Old Testament never says that if you have leprosy, it's because there is some sin in your life and God's punishing you for it. And yet, that's something that began to creep into the minds of the Jewish people. And this was something that was widely believed in the ancient world, that leprosy or something like this, this is a punishment from God. We know that this is something that the disciples even uh, had in their minds because we can look at places like the book of John. If you remember in John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are walking around and they encounter this man who was born blind. And the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? 
And so you can just see the assumption, the sort of knee-jerk assumption is that, well, if this guy's blind, somebody must have done something wrong. There's obviously, this is punishment for someone's sin. So was it his or was it this guy's? But the Bible never equates those two. The Bible never says that being ceremonially unclean equals being morally unclean. But that's what began to creep into the mind of God's people. And because leprosy was something that made a person ceremonially unclean, and because it was something that was very closely associated with sin, leprosy was a very costly thing to have. There was a significant relational and social cost to leprosy. Because when you had leprosy, you had to quarantine. You had to practice a pretty extreme form of social distancing. There was actually a camp outside of a city where you could go live with other people who were also unclean. If you were married, you left your children and your spouse and you lived out in this camp as long as you had this contagious skin condition. Whenever you came back into society and was around other people, you had to go around shouting, unclean, unclean, so that the people who saw you coming would know that they didn't have much time to get out of the way and they would scatter so that they wouldn't come in direct contact with you. So this leprosy, this uncleanness, became a part of a person's identity as long as they had this condition. They were defiled, they were dirty, they were corrupted, they were a threat to everybody that they came in contact with. And so you can see some of the social and the relational cost of having leprosy. But there's also an emotional and a spiritual cost to this. If you believed that the reason you have leprosy is because you have done something wrong and you've sinned and God is punishing you, what if you can't think of anything that you did wrong? What if you've said sorry for all the things that you've done and now you're thinking to yourself, am I even fixable? Am I even forgivable? What have I done? What more, what am I not thinking of? Maybe I'm just cursed. So there's a significant relational and social cost. There's also a significant emotional and spiritual cost to having leprosy. And all of that together shows us what what we should see here is something of the scandalous nature. It was scandalous that this man came and approached Jesus the way he did. This guy was supposed to stay out of the way. He was not supposed to come around people. And everything we've seen about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke so far is that he's got his disciples around him. He's got crowds that are following him. And so this man who's defiled by leprosy, who should have stayed away, he maybe presses through a crowd. He maybe comes close to where the disciples are as well as Jesus, and he should not have done that. This was scandalous for him to approach Jesus in this way, but in doing so, you can see something of the desperation he feels. Whatever this condition is that he has, it's bad enough for him to break every single social norm in order to get to Jesus. And so his desire is to get in front of Jesus just to get in front of him, and he says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So this man knows something about Jesus. Jesus has been traveling around. Jesus has been teaching. He's been healing. He's been doing all these things. And his reputation is getting out there. And this man knows Jesus is a miracle worker. Jesus has the power to heal me. 
there is no doubt in this man's mind that Jesus is capable of healing him. That's not the question for him. What is the question for this man with leprosy? Is he willing? The question is not, can he do it? The question is, is he willing? Does he want to? What is Jesus's, what is his heart towards me? What is his posture towards me? What reaction is Jesus going to have when I come close to him? Is he, like everybody else, going to withdraw in a, in a sense of shock and disgust when I come near him? Is he willing? Does he want to heal me? That's the question. And we see the answer to that in verse 13. So we see the desperate condition of this leper, but then the second thing we see in the text is we see the tender compassion of Jesus. Verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. So this man breaks all of the social norms by running up to Jesus and falling down in front of him in the first place. He shouldn't have done that. But don't too quickly move on from the fact that Jesus breaks all the social norms too. This man should not have come to Jesus and approached him. Jesus also should not have reached out and touched this man. Remember, according to the Old Testament teaching, Jesus would have become unclean, would have become defiled, if not catching leprosy itself, he would have become unclean by coming in contact with this man. And so Jesus breaks the social norms by disregarding, in a way, the Old Testament teaching on leprosy, and instead he reaches his hand out and he touches this man. And what you see is the reversal of the pattern that that is started in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when something that is clean comes in contact with something that is unclean, the unclean thing makes the clean thing dirty. Okay, that may sound a little bit complicated, but this, this, we, we all know this to be true. Okay? If you've ever spent time around children, young children, and they're eating and they have food on their face and their hands and they run up and they give you a hug, what is clean becomes unclean by coming in contact with something that is unclean. <laughs> right? You get it. If you're wearing a new pair of pants and you brush up against a park bench or against a handrail and a stairwell that's been freshly painted, what is unclean <laughs> transfers to what is clean. That's the pattern that we see all throughout the Old Testament. This is the pattern in some ways of regular everyday life. And the pattern here with Jesus is reversed. Jesus stretches out his hand, and instead of Jesus taking on the uncleanness that this man has, Jesus' cleanness is transferred to this man. The pattern is reversed. He becomes clean by coming in contact with Jesus. That's not what should have happened, according to the Old Testament. And yet that is precisely what happened. The pattern has been broken and immediately the text tells us this man was healed. So the point is that, you know, it wasn't like, hey, Jesus touched him and he got lucky because this guy was kind of on the mend but didn't know it and then got back to the camp and within about a week he was, you know, he was pretty much back to normal and and it just, you know, happened to be right in that sweet spot of when he was going to get better but he's, you know, that's not what happened. The text says immediately The man looks down and his skin was clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him. And so what we take away from this, 
the point of this entire encounter that is recorded for us is this, Jesus is willing. Jesus wants to heal this man. He desires to heal this man. His heart is filled. His heart is overflowing with compassion for this man who has this contagious skin disease who has borne the cost of having leprosy. Jesus loves him. His heart overflows with compassion for him. And as we read this passage and hear about this leper being healed, may I suggest that this passage is here in the Bible not only to tell us about Jesus' hearts of compassion for this leper, but it's here to tell us about Jesus' heart of compassion for us as well. Here's the already not yet tension we live in. This text tells us unequivocally Jesus is willing. Jesus wants to heal this man. His heart overflows with compassion for him and for us. And yet, for every one leper like this man, how many hundreds or thousands did not receive healing? And this is our experience too, isn't it? For every one instance of miraculous healing that we see or experience, how many thousands of prayers offered in faith seem not to make it past the ceiling? This is the already not yet reality that we live in. And I'm not going to pretend to give any sort of comprehensive answer to this, but let me just suggest that we look to the very next passage of scripture that's here in Luke 5. We see Jesus healing this man with leprosy, and the very next thing we see is Jesus healing a paralyzed man. Again, Jesus' reputation has gone out. People know he's a miracle worker, and people are crowding around him. They're inside of a house. People can't even get in because there's so many people crowding in the house. This guy needs his legs healed. He's paralyzed. He can't walk. And so his friends put him on this mat, and they carry him to Jesus. They can't get inside the house because it's so filled with people. They can't get near Jesus. And so they climb up on the roof, and they start pulling away the roof, and make a way to lower the man down basically on top of Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man, and do you remember what he says to him? He looks at this guy and says, hey, buddy, your sins are forgiven. Now, you got to just think that this guy, he probably you know, would never have thought to say this out loud because it would seem ungrateful. <laughs> but you got to think this guy is sitting there thinking to himself, okay, well, like, I guess that's cool and all. Um, but Jesus, isn't it clear that I didn't come here to get my sins forgiven, I came here to get my legs healed? And I bet he would say in that moment, you know, it's a bit of a letdown. Bit of a letdown that all I got was my sins forgiven instead of my legs healed. (laughs) And of course, Jesus then does go on to heal his legs, but we're supposed to see something in this passage. What we're supposed to see is that Jesus refused to let this man settle for his legs being healed when what he truly needed was for his sins to be forgiven. Jesus cuts right through all of the, you know, maybe the external felt need that this man had, and he cut right through it and said, your sins are forgiven. And in doing so, what Jesus shows us is that he loved him enough, he loved him enough to, if it came down to it, 
give him the healing that he truly needed instead of the, the healing that he, he actually wanted. This man wanted his legs to be healed. It's a real need. And yet Jesus said, if it came down to it and I had to choose one, the most important thing is for your sins to be forgiven, not for your legs to be healed. And so you've got these two things side by side where you see the compassion of Jesus saying, I'm willing, I want to heal you. You, you, you see a clear picture of the heart of Jesus, his willingness side by side with the clear teaching that what you most desperately need is not for your skin to be cleared. What you most desperately need is not for your legs to be healed. What you most desperately need is not for your circumstances to change, but for your sins to be forgiven, for your heart to be made new. And Jesus says, I'm unwilling to give you the thing that you want at the expense of the thing that you actually need. And so this is the already not yet aspect of God's kingdom. We live in that tension where we know that his heart is for us. And yet sometimes we ask the question, don't we? How can his heart be for us if those prayers that we pray in faith don't get answered the way that we want them to? And Luke puts these two things side by side to say, this is who Jesus is. You have to know he's willing, he's compassionate, he loves you, he's for you. And sometimes we experience the inbreaking of God's kingdom and it means we get the healing. Sometimes we don't experience that. And the point is that in either situation, whatever the case may be, whether your prayers are quote unquote answered or not, that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is willing, Jesus is compassionate, Jesus is for you. That's what we're supposed to see. And the way that we know that God is for us is because God was willing to send us his son. And he did so to heal the deeper kind of sickness that we have inside of us. The idolatry, the sinfulness, the selfishness, all of the brokenness, all of the dirt and the muck that lives inside of us, the poison of sin that lives inside of us, Jesus came and suffered and died so that that could be healed. And if we get our legs healed, if we get our leprosy healed, if our circumstances change, great, that's, that's icing on the cake. But we have to see that even if those things don't happen, Jesus is for us, God is for us. And so the good news of the gospel as it relates to this already not yet aspect of God's kingdom, the tension we live in, the good news is this, in Jesus, God delights to give us every good thing that we need. That's the good news of the gospel, that in Jesus, God has already, in him, given us every single good thing that we need. And you may say, every good thing already? And the answer is yes. Every good thing that we truly need, we already have in Jesus. Sometimes, when my heart wants to argue with that, it's because I'm a spiritual three-year-old. Have you ever heard someone under the age of five say, I need, and then it's followed by something that's actually a need? <laughs> no, but mom, I need cake. I need candy. I need, I need, I need. And you just think, you have no idea. <laughs> you're confu- you're, you don't have the mental capacity to understand wants and needs. And I wonder if the times where we want to say, but God, don't you understand? Don't you get it? I need this thing. 
I need this healing. I need this provision. I need, I need, I need. And what that can reveal is that we are spiritual two-year-olds in that moment. We don't understand. We don't believe deeply that he is for us and he will give us, he has given us every good thing that we need. As we look at the story of the gospel as it's laid out in scripture, what we see is the willingness of God. We see the overflowing love and compassion of God for his people. He wants, he delights to give us what we need. He delights to rescue us from our sin. He delights to make all things new. Sometimes, you may hear people talk as if Jesus is the softy of the Trinity. Right? Like, God the Father, he's the angry one. He's the one filled with judgment. He's angry. He's really angry about all the sin and the brokenness that's in the world, and he's just ready to clobber us all for it. And then Jesus, being the softy, steps in and says, no, 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 don't, don't, don't hurt them. Take me instead. And because God's so filled with anger, he has to hurt someone. And so he hurts Jesus instead of us. That's not at all what the Bible says about who God is. Do you remember how many times during this series we've talked about the Trinity and how important it is that you have God who is Father, Son, and Spirit who are all equally and eternally God And what we see in the Bible is not that God is some angry person and Jesus stands in the way to try and save us and appease the the anger of the, the abusive father who just has to abuse someone. That's not the picture we see. The picture we see in scripture is that the father and the son and the Holy Spirit together, overflowing with inexhaustible triune love, desire, want to rescue, want to save, want us to experience Life and renewal and joy. That's what God wants. And then you look at Jesus and you see Jesus was willing to take on human flesh. As if that's just some, you know, as if that wasn't enough. It goes even further than that and we see Jesus, the night before he's executed, he knows that this is the plan. He knows that the way that God's people are going to be saved is for, he's going to give his life in place of theirs. And Jesus, on the night before he died, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's begging the Father, saying, if there is any, if there's there's any other way that we can go about doing this that doesn't have to be through the cross. Can there be some other way? And yet what Jesus is doing in that moment is he says, not my will be done, but yours. So Jesus is He's reaffirming, he's keeping his will in line with the will of the Father, who's not an angry person who's looking to kill us. It was the Father's will that Jesus would suffer and die and absorb the sting of sin into the heart of God so that we could be forgiven. And so we see in, in, in the, the nature of who God is, In the person of Jesus, we see the inexhaustible, overflowing, triune love of God that he desires. He wants to rescue. He wants to save. And he's willing to do it even at great cost to himself. Even though it means he's going to absorb the pain, absorb the sting of sin into himself, he's willing to do that so that we can be rescued. And so what we do with that 
Let me just give you two very, very brief points of application with this. Number one, know that he is for you. You have to know that he is for you. I know that some of you maybe come before God and you feel like you are a bother to him. You feel like you're an inconvenience to him. Like, you know, he's got other much more important things to do than to listen to my little requests, to be in relationship with little old me. Some of you feel like when you come before God, you are a, you feel like a total screw up. You say, the things I've done, the things that I've said, all of those things, all the brokenness and, and, and the patterns that I, every time I come to God, I'm, I'm confessing the same stupid things. And I'm committing the same dumb, foolish sins. And if he's not already, he's certainly going to get real tired of me pretty soon and stop listening. But friends, that's not true. What the message of the gospel tells us, the good news is that in Jesus, he is for you. So number one, know that he's for you. And secondly, embrace life in the already, not yet. Embrace life in the already, not yet. It's, it's challenging, it can be hard, it can be filled with conflict and frustration, and it, can, it, it, it doesn't always feel great. And yet what we have to do is embrace the life in the already, not yet. And when we do so, when we live in this tension of we know that God is for us, and yet we don't always experience the full restoration of all things here and now the way we want to, what we have to, what that really does is it forces us into situations where we have to answer the question, do I really love him? Is he what I actually want? Or do I really want God because I can get his stuff? Do I really want God himself? Is he enough for me? When I don't receive the healing, when I don't receive the, the provision, when I don't receive the change in my circumstances, is he enough for me? Or do I sort of, in a way, by my, by my actions, by my life, by my attitude, say, you know, he's good, but what I really need is God plus this other thing. And life in the already, not yet, really forces us to grapple with that question. Do I love him? Do I want him? Or do I want his stuff? Friends, the good news of the gospel is this. God delights to give us every good thing that we need. As we come to the communion table this morning, what I want to do is I want to read a short quote from a book that I've been reading. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And he put this in a way that was just really helpful for me, so I want to share this with you. He says, the only two words Jesus will use to describe his own heart are gentle and lowly. And the first two words God used to describe who he is, from Exodus 34, are merciful and gracious. Unlike us, who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. That's a fitting way to describe 
what we see in this passage, the willingness, the desire of Jesus to give us what we truly need. And as we come to the communion table today, we get to receive the broken body and the shed blood of Christ for us. We get to celebrate, we get to remember that he is for us and he has demonstrated that by giving us his own son. So as we come to the communion table today, I wanna invite you to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection. Our merciful God, we do confess that we have sinned against you in our thoughts and our words and our deeds, both by things that we have done as well as by things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, Lord, we pray that you would forgive what we have been that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen. 